speaks of non-duality, the fact, and I'm not just giving the five minute, I'll get to the five minute speech, I'm just thinking, <laughs> thinking about it out loud. <laughs> the, 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 the philosophy is, is non-duality, that it means that uh, we, we posit the, the notion, the, really the experience of rishis and Great uh, mystics and transcendentalists experience that that the differences that we presently experience, like for some it may be too hot in here, and for others it, it may be too cold. Those are differences. Happies and sads, goods and bads. So these differences are illusory. They're product of our present method of perception, perceiving through them vehicle of the mind informed as it is by the senses. Do you follow? Just like you have a sense of touch, so if I touch you, then that's going to go to your mind, and you're going to get a feeling about that. It's good or it's bad. And similarly, when we see things, then we get an impression, and it's related to the mind. The mind makes a decision about it. Oh, that looks good. That looks bad. The mind is making that determination. And with hearing also, I like that song, I don't like the other song. It's not really the ear that makes the determination. The ear gives the information, the experience, and the mind makes the determination about it. And so we end up with all these goods and bads, happies and sads, hots and colds, and likes and dislikes and so forth. So that's what we call duality in a sense. But we say that the, that the nature of the experience of being and of reality, unencumbered by the filter of the mind, when reality is not filtered through the limitation of the mind, that the experience of these dualities is revealed for what it is, just a product of the mind. In other words, for you it may be hot, for me it may be cold, so which is it? That's just a mental judgment that we've, we've imposed upon the environment. So... It's neither. It's something else. But to get there, we need to go beyond the mind. The mind is inhibiting us from experiencing the true nature of being, from true knowing. We are a knower and we be. <laughs> we exist. Uh, the mind may change 
the body may change. We may change bodies. We may change our mind. But, but we are constant in all that. So to get, um, to go beneath the surface of the dualities created by the mind. And so then all the, all the variety of the world, all the forms and names and whatnot, they're all here today and, and gone tomorrow. They're all largely, at least the way we see them, they're, they're just the imposing of our own mind upon the environment. So, this is a little bit of the philosophy, the nature of reality beyond the limits of the mind is that it's, it's non-dual. But then the problem is that when we start to talk about the theology, that's the non-dual, that's the obeyed. Now we go to the bayed. We see that reality is one and different at the same time. So the difference is largely then the topic of, of theology rather than philosophy and and we enter into the bhakti that that arises out of that Vedanta. And then we have all kinds of differences and forms. And in other words, I've, I just told you that, that you're not the body nor the mind. So then that, that sounds interesting. And and then you're the, some kind of a consciousness and it kind of becomes rather vague. Although it does sound more tangible than the body, when we speak of the body and the, and the world of physical forms as being here today and gone tomorrow, as we do and as is our common experience, and when we start to talk about that, the fact that we are consciousness, not, not matter, then it's comforting in a way, but it's also just kind of disconcerting in a way. Where am I? And I'm, I'm consciousness. And we kind of go to a kind of a, like, a, like an impersonal kind of sense of reality. And, but then when we apply the second part of the equation of our metaphysic, the bhakti portion of it, the, the bed, the, the difference, it's, we, we speak of a difference that arises out of non-duality, on the ground of, of non-duality. So it becomes confusing to people readily, because now suddenly Krishna has a form, and you have a form in relation to Krishna, and Krishna has likes and dislikes and, and so forth. And we just explained how those things were illusory, and now we're having to explain how those things are reality, ultimate reality. So, at any rate, the, the bhakti portion is, in that sense, more difficult. But in another sense, it's easy to talk about also, because although we are not a product of the, of the mind, and we are not our mind, we're not our body, if we analyze ourself in this world, we see that we are a, some type of unit of dedication. We're always giving ourselves somewhere, dedicating ourselves to something. It may be the mind's demands, it may be the demands of the senses, but there we are, laboring to serve, often, unfortunately, masters that are merciless, the mind and the senses. Well, don't like to let us go. But that is another way of thinking about the bhakti part of the equation, that we are not the body, we are not the mind, we are a unit of consciousness that is possessed of a, by its very nature, it's a dedicating tendency. And the trick is to find the right place to repose ourselves as a unit of dedicating energy consciousness. And of course, that is uh, Krishna. And then again, it becomes a little more complicated why and how and so forth. So at any rate, I think that you have to give them a little bit of both philosophy and theology, Vedanta and Bhakti, Abed and Ved. And well, also they ask, what do you believe? That could be a whole discussion in itself. What is belief? <laughs> and I've talked about the difference between belief and faith and, and so forth. You want to try to speak in such a way that what you explain is not, what you give them is not some religious dogma. Because you have to understand that the dogma 
the theory and so forth really is an effort to explain experience. A Vedantist bases everything that he or she knows and the way he or she acts and proceeds and so forth on experience. The basic experience being that I'm a unit of consciousness, awareness, and much more than awareness, but that consciousness is more real than anything else because anything that doesn't endure is less than ultimately real. So all material things, like we said, come here today and gone tomorrow, but consciousness endures. You can deny the reality of one thing or another because it's, as I say, here today and gone tomorrow, but consciousness you cannot deny because the very act of denial is an act of consciousness. So this is his or her experience then. That's what we're talking about. So you want to try to talk about it so that it's not just some religious dogma. So when they say, what do you believe? You say, well, the, you say, our experience is, or the experience of our uh, teachers is, and to some extent our own, that we exist, but our present perception of the nature of our existence is limited by our senses and mental faculty. We exist, but our perception of the, of the nature and extent of our existence is limited by our minds and senses. And it's not that because we have eyes that we can see or ears that we can see or a mind that we can know, but we are the seer and the hearer and the knower as a unit of consciousness. And consciousness is different from matter. Matter is experienced, and consciousness is the experiencer. Our experience is that consciousness brings the world to life, and we are a unit of that, just like the driver brings life to the car and meaning to it. Without the driver, there's no meaning to the car. So our, our interest, then, is in uncovering ourself from the present limitations of the senses and the mind that don't enable us to get at the fullness of life, the full experience of life, and to be all that we can be. And while we know that we exist, we have a a practice by which we can experience the extent to which we exist, that we endure, not like other things that are here today and gone tomorrow. And we understand that that by that practice that enables us to experience ourself, the fullness of ourself, all fear will be dissipated. The extent to which we exist is such that we have nothing to be afraid of. We only think that we need this, that, or the other thing in order to, to exist. That's a hoax. So to come out from under that. And... So while we, we know that we exist theoretically, we, we have a practice by which we can experience the full measure of our existence, that we are uh, eternal. And also the practice enables us to experience the, the purpose for which we exist, which is to love. So our teaching is, we, we believe that um, we exist in a different way than material things exist which are here today and gone tomorrow. We exist in an enduring way. But we've identified with the temporary things and think that we're also temporary. We can come outside of, out from that illusion by our spiritual practice. And then we can experience the extent to which we exist and know that we have nothing to fear. We have no necessity. And upon realizing that we have no necessity, we see that we nonetheless have, there's, there's a meaning to our existence. So what is the meaning of someone's existence that has no necessity? That's just to be happy, to express the happiness of having no necessity and being full. So we exist, we can know the extent that we exist, and we can know the reason that we exist. We exist like material things, but in a different way from material things, because we exist in an enduring way. And knowing that is the end of all fear. Fear that comes from identifying with things that don't exist.
forever and thinking that we may not and having to be busy to protect ourselves and maintain ourselves and so forth. We can be free from that struggle, rat race. So we exist, but we can, unlike material things, we exist in an enduring way and we can come to know that. And upon knowing that, then we can live the fullness of life, which is to be happy, to love. Being full, that means knowing the extent to which we exist and the purpose for which we exist, which is to be happy, to love, then suddenly from being an, a person who is in need, we are a person who, has the, has, who is full, and then we only have the need to give out of fullness, out of happiness, something like that. This is Satchit Ananda. In the words, so we, I would say something like that. Well, we, our experience as that, uh, that of our great teachers is that we exist, all of us. But we exist in a different way than material things exist, which are here today and gone tomorrow. We exist in an enduring way, and we can know that by our spiritual practice. The value of knowing that is that we overcome the fear and anxiety that comes from identifying with material things that are here today and gone tomorrow, which leads us to believe that we might be gone tomorrow. And therefore we have to struggle. And in that struggle, well, we're competing with one another and, and it's like a, like a rat race. So we don't want to be part of that. And by our spiritual practice, then we, we can realize how it is that we exist differently from matter in an enduring way. And in the context of realizing that by our spiritual practice, we can also realize that, that life is really about giving. Life is about loving, not about taking, which we're forced to think when we identify with material things. And when we're full in the knowledge of what we are and for the, the purpose for which we exist, then we can be givers and um, free from all types of exploitation. We believe, <laughs> with a few thoughts, we believe that the world is, is fueled by exploitation and that the root of this exploitation is our identification with matter, material things which leads us to think and act as if we have to take in order to live. And by our spiritual practice, we can understand that we don't have to take in order to live, but really we should, if we're to live fully, we will live by giving. Something like that. When you get to the giving side, then you come into bhakti. We speak about the difference between matter and the, and the soul and the fact that we exist in an enduring way. We're talking more of the, the philosophy. So it's certainly difficult in, in five minutes. And people's attention spans probably when they ask you, can you tell me in five minutes is about 30 seconds. <laughs> so it might, not, it might be better not to try to go the full five minutes, but just say something that something that they... Really, when people, as I say, when they ask for five minutes, they only have about maybe 15 or 30 seconds of, of attention that they want to lend you. So it's probably better to just to give some kind of sound bite that they'll go, oh, I like that. That's probably the best way to do it, something like that. We believe that the world is full of exploitation, and there's a way to overcome that. And always be giving. We believe that you should give to live not take to live. Well, I like that. That sounds nice. So rather than try to explain the whole thing, that or some other aspect of the teaching that um, that is more or less, as I began, not some kind of dogma, but more or less the excavating, uh, playing out some a universal truth that everybody accepts, because that's what we're really talking about here. We're talking about things that are universally true, and really that everyone kind of knows what the full implication of those things are. Just like I've often said, everyone knows that being selfish is not very nice. It doesn't make other people happy, 
that doesn't make you happy. Now you can, if you were to pursue that universal truth, you would end up in Goloka. You'd end up in, in Krishna Lila. That giving up, well, giving up the selfishness and, and taking and being a giver. So try to find some like universal truth that people already kind of know. Maybe they haven't even thought about it, but as soon as you say it, they'll go yes, and um, and give some slight nuance on it, something like that. So there are probably in a number of ways that they could come up with a thirty-second or fifteen-second kind of idea. And of course, if they ask more, then you can explain more. You could make a simple statement like, we believe there's a difference between the body and conscious, matter and consciousness. And just play that out and not go any further than that. That's, that's also a good starting point. The best thing also, of course, is that by your example, that, of course, if you have a good example and people think that she's a nice person, he's a nice person, what are they about? Then they will ask you that kind of question. So if you get asked a lot, then you must be doing well without having to go and tell everybody. Stand on the street corner and shake them down. If by your very example people say, what do you believe? What are you about? Then you can laugh and say, oh, that's a long story. (laughs) Sometime you'll have to come to my home and we can talk about that. But in brief, we believe like this. We believe that life is about giving, not about taking, that life will be, our life will be full when we learn how to give completely. And it will become full in a profound sense because ultimate reality is situated in acts of giving, sacrifice. So the more we give, even if we give in completely, the feeling of fullness that comes to us from that is because it's bringing us closer to ultimate reality. That sounds pretty esoteric, doesn't it? (laughs) Uh, I've got too much of a philosophical mind to answer in five minutes. But short, some short sound bites are probably best. We believe what's explained in the Bhagavad Gita. Have you read the Bhagavad Gita? You can uh, introduce them to the literature also. You could say, oh, we hear something about what we believe. We have this magazine. Ananda, you can read that. So, what else? Some of the guests came, but they didn't, uh, no, but they didn't they're, come. They're just coming. I'm waiting for them oh. to come forward. They... Okay. What else? Yes. I was thinking that I'd like people to ask me that more often question. So, what should I do then? Well, you, of course, you, you have... Um, the finished disposition working against you. <laughs> it's not like America. No. People are always asking what you're about. What are you all about? <laughs> but um, what should you do so that people will ask you that question more often? You have to become more happy. <laughs> and to become happy, you have to apply yourself in Krishna consciousness. Really, this uh, should be, the dissemination of this should be overflow of our own experience, largely. And that will have the most power. When we speak from experience, that will be most compelling. I once told Prabhupada, I, I said that this is kind of along the same lines, but uh, different at the same time. He, I said, people are, the devotees are always asking me, because I was, used to be f- uh, fond of, uh, engaged in, in distributing Prabhupada's books to, to people. And so I told him that the devotees uh, are always asking me, how do you distribute the books? And he said, well, what do you tell them? I said, well, I tell them that I, I, by following the practices, then I get the power to, Talk to people about. It. He said, "Yes, this is our only technique. Not some, you know, like salesmanship or, or something like that. How to win friends and influence people or anything like that. But it's yoga. So 
the more you go within Krishna consciousness, which is in effect, in many respects, kind of moving away from the world as it is, the madness of it, and the exploitation that it's based upon, the more attractive you become to the world, which is not very happy. The land of exploitation is not a happy place. So the more you move away from it, and it is, the more attractive you become to the people in it, and the more you stand out in it, actually, as someone to look to, because everyone's looking for, for that. Everyone's looking to be happy, to be fulfilled. That's the whole pursuit of life. That's what we exist for. We exist for no reason. The joy is not about reason. Love is not about reason. We exist just to... God exists for joy. And we are part of that. So somehow that's been obscured by the mask of maya, illusion. So the more you move away from the world, the more you, the more you become attractive to the world. The more people want want you, the more you... You know, if you if you move in the world by exploiting and so forth, you'll also be attractive to people in a way. They'll want what you have because you have an appearance of having something and being fulfilled. But people will not be attracted to you in the way that they will if you become a giver. They won't want what you have materially. They want to, they'll want to be like you. And so the more we move away from exploitation, the more we become attractive. It's a little bit, you know, Zen-like. You, know, you do the opposite. And small is big and that kind of thing. So you have to practice. And, um, and sometimes people won't ask also, but that doesn't mean they aren't interested. So you may find opportunities to, you may understand that, and find opportunities to talk about what you're about, even when not asked, in a way that won't be unwelcomed. Or also, as you become more Krishna conscious, then naturally you will talk about things, reflect upon things from that focal point, from that vantage point. Things that come up in everyday conversations or... You know, people talk about the news, politics, whatever's happening and so forth. So when you speak, then you speak from that advantage point, from that uh, lens that you're viewing the world, and that will become interesting and insightful. And uh, then people will want to know more. So it's, you know, it's a process, a gradual process of assimilating Krishna consciousness. Krishna is all attractive, so you want to know how you can be more attractive to people so that you can attract them to Krishna. So the answer is that you have to attract Krishna. <laughs> Krishna is all, means all attracts. So if you attract Krishna, then you become the bearer of Krishna in your heart, and people will naturally be attracted to you. So how to attract Krishna? That, that's what we do. I told the devotees recently that we don't follow any rules. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has told us there are no rules. Nam namakari bahudani dusarva shakti stataralpita niyamita smaranena kala. That our practice is chanting about Krishna, hearing and chanting about Krishna, about the uh, all attractive nature of reality seen without the filter of the mind. Krishna. And there are no rules. But then it seems that we have so many rules also. But these are not rules. These are means of posturing ourselves in such a way as to attract the person whom we want to attract. If we're attracted to someone and we want them to be attracted to us, then we'll find out about that person and we'll adopt things that will be attractive to that person. So this is all part of the play of love, if you will. It's not rules and regulations. Very free kind of path. The path is, love is the path. Love is the way, something like that. In the karma marg, then, there's negotiating, taking from God. In the gyan marg, then, uh, we stop taking, but no giving. 
and in bhakti marg than giving. So, in karma marg there are so many rules, so many rules. In gyan marg, there are less rules. It means we're becoming closer to God, who's free. And in bhakti marg, there are no no rules. There's only a semblance of rules that are things that that are done in the early stages to attract the attention of of Krishna, posturing oneself in such a way that he may be attracted to us. But that that is a kind of a lower side of love. Do you follow? In the karma mark, then there are so many rules. We have to acknowledge the godly factor in every everything in our lives, the sun and the wind and the rain and and so forth. And they have so many sacrifices to, to acknowledge that. So many rules and to factor God into the human experience and acknowledge and, and so forth, that we may live a bountiful material life. But in Mark, then one doesn't want to live a... isn't, isn't concerned about it. means knowledge. A bountiful material life. Because one has the knowledge that no matter how much I get materially, I won't be happy rather than trying to get something on and I just be what I am, myself. I'm not matter, so what will a material thing do for me? So on that path, then, one sits down, meditates, doesn't have to run around here and there, and uh, not taking, so less rules to govern that. And then bhakti is giving. That's the land of no... No rules. So, think a bit like that. How to posture ourselves in such a way as to attract the attention of Krishna and his devotees. And then as we do that, we become more attractive to other people. Naturally, Krishna is all attractive. People want to know what you're about. Of course, you could keep a picture of Krishna on your desk at work. And then some, some of those people come say, Oh, is that your son? Is that your husband? Who's that? <laughs> He's my friend. <laughs> so, what else? Yes. Uh, are women equals with men when it comes to understanding Krishna? Are women equals with men? Do they have equal capacity to understand yeah. Krishna? Yeah, sure. Sometimes better. <laughs> no, it's not dependent on anything like that. It's dependent upon good company, good association. Human life is basically different from other species of life because in human life we get the opportunity to discuss these kind of things. This is the one thing that we can do that the other forms of life have not evolved to yet. Like animals, only on you know, only in the movies do they only in Krishanki's cartoons do they do they comics do they have those those abilities. So human life, whether it be male or female or black or white or Indian, American, European, Scandinavian, Finnish, that doesn't doesn't matter. It's a great opportunity. Human life is so rare and it's like getting let out of jail. Human life for a unit of consciousness, which we all are. Life is consciousness, not matter. So, sometimes we use the word soul because you know, we're living in a largely Christian world, and they use the term, but we mean something quite different often than what uh, is meant in Christianity. Soul means, we, when we say that, we mean a unit of knowing, a unit of knowledge, of pure existence. It's different from matter, different from the body, different from the mind, different from the intellect. And we're we're made of that. Now we're covered by a body, a mind, an intellect. And when we get to human life, we can experience that. In the lower forms of life and animal life and plant life and so forth. The same what's the life is that unit of consciousness. Makes the tree grow, makes the dog bark. But that unit of consciousness, that's the entity, the life, is inhibited from experiencing itself. 
by the confines of the body. Therefore, dogs can only do certain things, and bears can only do other things. Birds can fly in the sky, fish can swim at the bottom of the ocean, and so forth. But in human life, we, we have a sense that we could do any of those things. And the reason is because human life, the soul, the self, that unit of consciousness that's life, is less encumbered by matter. It's more free. So we have a sense that we could fly in the sky so we make airplanes. We, we should be able to go to the bottom of the ocean so we make submarines and so forth. Because the fact of the matter is what we're experiencing is that, is that the self has the capacity to do anything and be anywhere. and It's not dependent upon matter to live. Matter has no meaning without me, without us. If we lend ourselves to, to a material thing, it takes on life. If not, it doesn't. These things we can start to ponder in human life. So human life is like is like getting out of jail. It's compared to the other forms of life. See how inhibited that consciousness is in plant life. It can't even move. It can go up, but it can't go sideways. And in animal life, a little more free. But still, all of these lower forms of life that are a product of karma. We arrive there by karma. Human life in comparison to them is like getting out of jail. You've been let out. I mean, we are so free compared to the other species of life. But, just like when someone gets out of jail after a long time, they kind of don't know what to do with themselves. They have to kind of, how do I fit in here? We get given an opportunity in human life to fit in and understand the purpose of it all. And, and work, you know, act appropriately and so forth. But oftentimes when people get out of jail, they don't know, they don't know what to do. They've done their time, but they haven't been fully reformed. They've done their sentence, but they haven't been fully reformed, and they don't know how to integrate in a healthy way into the society. So human life is there, but spiritual guidance is also there. Sacred texts and teachers and so forth to help us in our human life. When we combine a human opportunity with that facility, then we can live a full life. And so this is for all human beings, men or women, as I say, black or white. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what human life is and good company, good association. So, yes, men and women have the same, same capacity. There are many women saints also now our tradition. But animals don't have the same capacity. Plants don't have the same capacity. Germs don't have the same capacity. But, in the same time, they are not any lesser than us, inherently, but they're more implicated, karmically. And so, we do have to relate to them in terms of their imprisonment, if you will. And when we do that from a spiritual perspective, we hasten their release. Just like we, we grow in our monastery, we, we grow our own vegetables. So that's plant life. We grow them only for the purpose of offering them to Krishna and then taking the remnants and using the energy we get from that for divine service and so forth. So this will hasten that plant's release, you understand? This is how to live in the world without exploiting, even though we're taking and eating the fruit and eating the vegetable. What's happening to the consciousness that's the life inside of there? When its whole existence has been, by divine intervention, if you will, through the medium of human society, has been used only for God's service. Then it can go from, it may have been destined to move from plant life to animal life, to one type of animal to another, till it becomes ready to go to a human life. But it could go directly from plant life to human life. This is how to live in a world without exploitation, even though we exploit, apparently. I also eat, right? But what is the mood behind that, the consciousness behind that, and so forth? So this is how a devotee a realized devotee can live in the world and and look like we were talking about this earlier, look like an ordinary person in many respects, but 
but be creating such good fortune for for others. So human life, yes, yeah, is like getting out of out of jail. It's a great opportunity. We just need some counseling, how to integrate with the with the real world, with the soul world, the world of consciousness that we're coming into. After all, we're waking up at this point to the fact that we exist. Now you can, in human life, you can think about the fact that you exist. That's not a topic of conversation amongst animals. This is extraordinary. Extraordinary opportunity that we have, so we should use it wisely. You're a young man, so you're lucky to hear about these things and be interested at your age. You're rich, you have an inheritance, you have human life, but now you have to spend it wisely, right? Because it could be misspent also. People do that. They misspend their human life. That's why there are animals. <laughs> That's why there are plants. If you start to poke out from beneath the covers of matter into the world of consciousness, which is really what human life is about, just kind of starting to enter there. But then you, you're on kind of like probation. Human life is like you've got to... You've got you're on probation. You're out, but we're watching you, <laughs> because that land of consciousness, no one's no no exploitation is going to go on there. None of that. So you're on probation, and you have some some practices given. You have to meet regularly and and discuss these kinds of things and so forth. see the probation officer and so forth. But if you don't do that, and you be, then you become a disturbance, then you'll be hurled back. You, you're demonstrating, oh, I, I belong more in my identification with the realm of matter than consciousness. I'm not ready to go there. I'd rather, what do they say? Rather reign in hell than to serve in heaven. I don't want to serve. The, the consciousness is a, is a dedicating unit, so we're a unit of serving. We serve our mind, we serve our senses, we serve the government, we serve our parents, we serve our our desires, and so forth. But all that service is not making us happy, so we have to find a place to repose our serving tendency. So the land of consciousness, then, is all about serving. It's, it has a center. Everyone is dedicated to that center. So as we come to human life, there's a chance to start to, to think about it anyway, and to entertain the thought of what I am and what, what my potential is as consciousness and so forth. But we find that people abuse that and they, they are more identified with matter and the realm of taking and exploitation. So then nature mandates then there's some devolution. I, guess, I don't know if that's a word, but antithesis of evolution, some kind of evolution we're involved in, a little different, some similarities to what Darwin came up with, but some differences also. There was a big debate in America, maybe you heard about it, intelligent design and, and uh, Darwinian evolution. So what would you say if they ask you, do you believe in intelligent design? You know, even according to Darwin, the whole of the evolution seems to be driven by some intelligence. The smart person survives. Who's smarter survives? But the leap, of course, however well or not, it's not my realm, but entirely. But however well or not, the biological evolution can be demonstrated. The leap is from how chemicals can turn into. Biology, chemistry turns into biology. That doesn't make a lot of sense. So we say, no, that's, that's, we don't have to make that leap. There's something called consciousness. You've heard of it? <laughs> you want to philosophize it away, but, but not because you don't exp- have any experience of it. We can't understand how, you can, how there's any experience independent of consciousness. <laughs> they want to say, well, we don't have any experience of consciousness. Well, our experience is limited, I guess they say. It comes from matter. This is our conjecture their conjecture, but no. Consciousness is driving the whole, any kind of material evolution is behind it. Maybe we can talk about That's a big topic another day. So women have the same capacity as men. 
human life is the doorway, the opportunity. Now, you probably ask that because our spiritual tradition, like many other spiritual traditions, is not new. It's been around for a long time. And you also know, we all know, that over periods of time, social norms change, right? So there was a time in the world where, for example, I don't know about this country, but in the United States, women couldn't vote. There was a time when people in the Christian world thought that women had no souls, like Descartes thought that animals had no souls. Men thought that women had no souls. And so while they may have been speaking about spiritual truths in different traditions and so forth, to one extent or another, all the religious traditions were nonetheless expressing themselves in a particular cultural and social setting of the time. So they sometimes they carry with them baggage, cultural and social baggage from the past. So some people, for example, will, will speak about our tradition in a way that is not um, well different than the way I have regarding that question. Because they may think like, like um, other people in other religious traditions who are also carrying baggage, cultural and social baggage from the past, that those social norms are part of the spiritual tradition because it appeared at a certain time in a certain social context and so women were dealt with in a certain way at that time and, and so forth. But those things, things have to be separated from the essence of the teaching has to be kind of updated, so to speak. Just like if you go someplace where the social norms are one way, then you're going to have to speak about the ultimate reality in a particular way that people will identify with and and so forth and so on. And so great saints have done that. And then and we hear about that from the past and we sometimes have difficulty distinguishing between why they were speaking the way they were which was relative to the social norms of the time and what they were actually speaking about. You understand? So we carry that baggage. And now all these so many religious traditions are dealing with this kind of issue, just like the secular world is dealing with this issue. Right? The difference between men and women, whether they're equal or not. So, does it help? Yeah. You see, she's sitting on an even higher seat than me. <laughs> no problem. I'll go and get them though. They finally found their way. Go and get the means to walk across. Just the... walk across. Okay. They, had, they were in some ditch with the car and some tractor had to pull them out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> you know, everyone has their troubles getting here. Right. So. To take trouble to come to a gathering like this is fruitful, it's, it's useful. There's no effort then. It's not as fruitful. It's called padasevanam, to make make an effort to go to a holy place, to a meeting of like this. And then, if there's an obstacle to overcome, it's so much better. See, when you think like this, then all the troubles go away. The problems are actually part of the solution. They're a stage of the the solution. There are no problems. Only service opportunities. What do you think, Tina? (laughs) (laughs) I'm in panic. (laughs) Well, I certainly have had problems in my journey to Krishna. And... To Sadhusanga, but you know, after you made your way through the obstacles or whatever, you know, there is always a re- reward or a great feeling, or mm-hmm. your faith grows, or you learn to look at things differently, or from a different angle, or something like that. Yeah, so you're confirming what I said. By your own experience. That's nice. When it's all over, then 
you think there was no struggle at all. It was nothing. But first it feels like a struggle. First we think that there's so much to risk and so little gain. I have all these things. I'm going all these places. I had all these plans. They were all well thought out. And then I met that devotee and now they're tempting me to come in this direction, but I'll have to leave so many things and change my life and and so forth. So it looks like there's a lot to risk. But anyway, if we're a little thoughtful, philosophical, and, in, and such devotees can endear us, sharing their heart with us, then we can take the risk. And then we'll find that there was, we think there was, there was, uh, Nothing to risk and all to gain. What, we, what we thought we had was nothing. We didn't have it. It wasn't ours. The plan was faulty. But spiritual life will always be a challenge at different levels of progress and so forth. And it will always appear that, that there's theoretically more by going here, going another step. But the practical experience is I'm better off hanging on but just when we let go and go to the other side, we find out oh, how wrong I was. And as you travel along this path, you have to look back. When challenging times come to you, like that, and, the, and Krishna has moved the bar, so to speak, and you have to now jump this high and forget that also, retire this, and so on. And as encouraging as that is, it's, it's also as disconcerting as it is, but we can get courage from looking back and seeing how we felt like that previously with regards to other things in our life. And that since we let them go and went forward, how insignificant they are. Same is true at that moment also when you're being called to go further. They should be wise and look back. History repeats itself. So many of you here to get here so much you, you had to change in your life and that was disconcerting and you had to think about what, I'd, what will it be like? What, what if what will people think of me? What will, what will become of me? These kind of thoughts and so forth. But now you can look back and laugh at some of those things that you were hanging on to that you were concerned about and, and so on. So the things that you are concerned about now that are holding you back are as laughable, if not more. So you can get courage and strength from looking back. That's true. The material world is, is no there's no firm ground to stand on. So when we hear the call, the flute sound of Krishna saying, I'm over here now. Go over here. <laughs> then after a while we become practiced, then we run. We're running there. As soon as we hear the sound, we're running over there. Now we hear him go, Did I hear that? I'm not sure if I heard that he's gone. Maybe that was something else. <laughs> and, and then it comes again, and it's undeniable. Then, all right, so pack my bags. And I'll go there. <laughs> Eventually, then you run. As soon as you hear, it. as soon as the gopis heard the flute sound of Krishna, they ran. They dropped everything. Socially speaking, they had so many reasons not to. They were cooking, boiling milk on the stove, and they were, these, are, these are milk people, you know, they're cow people, so milk is everything to them. The byproducts of the cow, boiling the milk on the stove, you know. If you milk a cow, then you know what it means when they say, don't cry over spilled milk, because, have you heard that English saying? So if you milk a cow every day, then when any milk spills, then you feel, oh, like crying. <laughs> Such a valuable thing, I spent all this time milking. It's not like buying it in, in the store. One of the devotees was telling me that we were speaking with a friend or a relative or something like that and telling how at our monastery, at our we milk the cows. And they go, oh, wow, they said, that's fascinating. You never have to buy any real milk. <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, they were boiling the milk and it was spilling over. And they would run they follow the flute sound of Krishna, the milk would spill over. And some of them were 
taking care of their infants and so forth. They just left them. Can you imagine? Just leaving your child, abandoning your children. You'd be arrested for that. Condemned by the whole society. But they heard the flute sound of Krishna. They didn't stop. Because they were waiting for that sound. They They were waiting for that. They had developed love for Krishna. They were cultivating that. It was unfolding in the Leela. So if we're cultivating this regularly, daily, we're chanting from our hearts sincerely. Then when the, when Krishna answers, come over here. Then, but sometimes we're not we're not practicing. Still, he says, come over here. And we so we think I don't know if he really said that. Maybe that was just my mind. I, I don't know. That doesn't make sense. I mean. I've got other things to do, and I'll do that later, and so on. Sincerely cultivating, always chanting, without any, with attention and so forth, try to chant with our heart. Then we hear the progressive call, and we know. We're looking for that call. So when it comes, just like, it was just like waiting for him to call, waiting for him to call the phone. There must be him. Run there. The heart will... We'll go there. Heart is beating for the phone to ring, for the flute to sound. That's how they were keeping themselves. So as soon as it, we play that note, immediately they dropped everything. That was the call. Come, meet me now. We will consummate our relationship. Yes, the devotee will become attracted to Krishna and develop love for Krishna first and express that love for Krishna. And then Krishna at some point will express his love for the devotee. We see it in the Brajalila, the gopis. They had love for Krishna. They talked with one another. They'd hold hands and sing how they wanted to become, live in the house of Nanda Maharaj, with him as their father-in-law, Balaram as their brother-in-law. And they would make up songs like this, walk hand in hand and sing amongst themselves. But Krishna was not showing that he loved them. They sensed it and so forth. So it will come like this. You have to show love for Krishna. In a general way, of course, he's showing love for us. We know that. He's given all teaching about himself, about the nature of being and reality and so forth. He sent his representatives to canvas on his behalf. He loves us. But that is in a general way he's showing that. He's showing what? I want you to love me. And when I see that you love me, then... Naturally, Krishna Akarshini. You'll have me. You'll have me captured. So first they show their love for him, and then they expressed it for them by playing the flute. And they went immediately. They had a thousand and eight reasons for not going, but they went anyway. Risked everything, apparently, but they gained. They became immortalized in the religious world. In the religious world of the Bhagavat, they got the highest position. And they were simple ladies, village girls only. They were, according to the social times, uneducated, (laughs) simple. And they got the highest position above Narada, Uddhava, Brahma, Shiva, all these big people in the religious world. It's a wonderful story. So we have to cultivate. It's a cultivation. But we're earnestly cultivating them. We'll, we'll know how to proceed. We'll hear the call and know where to go. And there will be challenge at first, as I say. And it will appear like, oh, there's so much to risk. And, and what will I gain? And Will there be any ground to stand on if I leap? Will I maybe fall down into the abyss? When there's people on the other side, it looks like they're standing on nothing. <laughs> They don't appear to have anything, but they're standing firm, standing still, peaceful, and happy. The whole world very busy, 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 moving, moving, trying to get security, firm ground to stand on. And it looks like maybe they have it. He got a better job. She got a bigger house. And the sadhu, the saint, is living in the forest, 
no big bank balance, what is, what is her security. You should take courage from such the voices of such persons, from where they speak, they are actually standing on firm ground. On the, they've built a life on the ground of consciousness, firm ground. They've got real estate in a place where there's no death. Purchasing power for that they have, and extending that purchasing power to us, giving us a loan through their association, like a broker, giving a loan, take it. We have some capital. We have human life. They are wise, saintly persons, so they know where to invest their capital. They see human life and it spiritual interest, and they want to invest some capital there. There's some prospect then. So they invest capital in us, encourage us, give us the teaching, and so forth. Then we have to spend that capital and actually become wealthy ourselves. And always said in the beginning, then it will look like a, a challenge. But eventually, as every in investment that we make becomes fruitful, then we'll be running there. No hesitation. So we want to cross over onto that, that stage.